0: Those can be like really serious, real-world repercussions to not taking this approach of always involving people who will be your end users, learning from them, and involving them throughout the process.
1: Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Constant Contact. Today, I'm interviewing Cheryl Kababa. Cheryl currently leads as the Chief Strategy Officer at Substantial, a transformative design studio ensuring that design solutions are informed by real, lived experiences and contexts of the end users. With a design background shaped by industry giants like Microsoft and Philips, she has a unique ability to understand and weave the intricacies of design thinking with profound empathy for human experiences. Cheryl is particularly focused on uplifting historically marginalized voices in the education sector, crafting tools and solutions that approach the user experience innovatively and equitably. In this episode, Cheryl will be sharing the key to achieving improved design practices and fostering greater equity in the nonprofit sector. Join us as we explore how to create meaningful impact and drive positive change within your organization, resulting in more inclusive and equitable outcomes for all. There is so much to learn in this episode, and I can't wait to dive in. So let's go meet Cheryl. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Cheryl Kababa. Cheryl, welcome to What The Fundraising.
0: Thanks so much. I'm really excited to be having this conversation.
1: I am thrilled to dive in. Why don't we start with you just sharing a little bit about you and your background and history and what brings you to our conversation today?
0: My name is Cheryl Kababa. My pronouns are she and her, and I am the Chief Strategy Officer at Substantial, which is an insights design and development studio in Seattle, and we work primarily in the education space. And what I do as a person with a design background is I use human-centered design and equity-centered design to help inform the education space. And that's everything from using our methods to lift student voice throughout the process of strategic investment decision-making all the way to helping to design ed tech products for students that are funded within the philanthropic space to better and more equitably serve students who are historically marginalized within education. That's kind of our approach. And yeah, my background is a designer and design researcher focused on human-centered design. Can we define
1: human-centered design a little bit and maybe to help folks who are unfamiliar even with the design landscape, like when something isn't human-centered, what is it then centered on?
0: I can kind of answer that from having a product design background. So I spent a lot of time working sort of like the first half of my career as a product designer, Create on digital products like for organizations like Microsoft for Philips. I worked, for example, on one of the first activity monitors that Philips was designed before the Fitbit came out and the digital experience that goes along with that. And so oftentimes when we're talking about something that's not human-centered design, it might be centered around the product or the thing that you're designing rather than the context and experience of the humans who use it, who find value in it, or what have you. You can kind of think about things, let's say like, Technologies that maybe were before we were using Apple products really widely, like think about an old remote control from the 80s or something like that, that is product centered (laughs) because it's just meant to like make the thing work. And there is very little engagement with like how people might actually use it. The fact that those had like poor human factors, even you can't even like hold them in a way that makes sense. And all the buttons look the same. There's no hierarchy whatsoever. So it does not involve the context of use as much as just like making a thing work. When you're oriented around human-centered design, you're taking somebody's context first, you're understanding the problem space. So you're understanding their barriers and challenges as well as potential opportunities. And then you're designing around that rather than the other way around. So I oftentimes describe it as like, in order to design the thing right, you first need to design the right thing. And designing the right thing means understanding the context and the problem space in its entirety before embarking on designing something.
1: Okay. Can we talk about like, what are the consequences when something or some examples of consequences when something isn't designed in a human centered way, what ultimately then happens?
0: There's lots of things that could be like repercussions of not engaging in human-centered design from, we see this a lot in digital experiences. For example, I don't know if you remember from a few years ago, there was a missile warning in Hawaii and everybody was freaking out because they're like, is this real? Like they got an alert. And it turns out the interface had like a drop down that didn't make sense to the people who were using it. And so they accidentally triggered this islands wide alert, the statewide alert that just made everybody terrified. And it was a horrible experience. I think another good example that is often used is, do you remember, I'm going to be telling on my age here now, but in the 2000 election, We had those voting ballots from Florida that had the hanging chats, and the things were like not aligned. And there was, it was very clear to anyone who has a design background that this was conceptually never tested. This was never reviewed or prototyped or anything with actual end users, which is a big part of human centered design, by the way, is like doing things iteratively and testing and prototyping and making sure the ideas are good and testing them with actual humans before like releasing something to the world. And so those can be like really serious real world repercussions to not taking this approach of always involving people who will be your end users, learning from them and involving them throughout the process.
1: And your work also is really focused on equity. So when it comes to equity, what are the consequences? I mean, I'm already like predicting some in my head, but just not to make some assumptions. Like how does this human-centered design approach, one, either account for equity or what is that additional design element that ensures that?
0: That's such a good question because human-centered design, I think a lot of people assume like there's an equity component built into it, but I don't actually think there is. Like if you're just focused on like end users, you're not really thinking necessarily about fairness, which is a big component of equity, right? Fairness across differences. And- I think the idea is that you should be thinking about those who are least served by existing systems or by existing solutions and design for them first. Like oftentimes this is called inclusive design because you are thinking of those who maybe have what is sometimes described as the most extreme experiences. So like a good example of this that you can see out in the world, well, I'll give two examples. So one is curb cuts. So, curb cuts are designed because you know activists with disabilities like insisted on this like being something that is necessary for urban environments and advocated for themselves in order to create the regulation around that and What we see is that not only does it serve those in wheelchairs but it also serves those who, under certain circumstances, like you're pushing like a baby stroller or you're pulling a cart, it accidentally, I guess, serves other people beyond those with the most extreme experiences. So in many ways, others benefit. In the work that we do with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they oftentimes use a concept of targeted universalism, which comes from the Haas School center of, I'm gonna get this wrong, but I'm gonna try, is like the center of belonging. I believe, at UC Berkeley. And what it is, is it means designing for certain groups and seeking to create better outcomes for those groups. And what ends up happening is that many others benefit from it as well. So if you're designing for students who are most marginalized, if you're designing for students, let's say, who are multilingual learners, it's very likely other students are also going to benefit from the methods that you use in order to better design for them. So that's kind of like the way we think about applying human-centered design with through an equity lens is kind of designing for those who are most marginalized in the system.
1: I'm curious, like... When you're thinking about user design, and this is not going to come out very articulately, I don't think, because I don't think I have the words necessarily, but I'm going to try. When I think about the use of something, so I'm trained in habit and behavior design, right? And in that framework, we're consistently thinking about the relationship between motivation, ability, and a prompt, And when I think about some of the design elements that you're talking about, I can see the ability levers that need to be moved to make things more accessible and make the action easier to do for different ability levels or different types of accommodations. And then when I think about motivation, who I studied under Dr. B.J. Fogg, he talks about motivation being the relationship between hope and fear. And so there's this like maybe more physical utilization of a tool. And then there's the emotional experience of either the desire to use the tool or the actual using of the tool or product or whatever it is. And in fundraising, like when I think about fundraisers specifically, there's been so much energy on the product development side, on the even the coaching and consulting side around the ability access, around making the action easier for fundraisers to do. But there's been very little focus on the motivation access and really decreasing fear around taking actions. And we've sort of confused like simple for easy, because we pretend that it isn't an emotional action. It's really simple action, clicking send on an email. And it's like, actually, that email has a lot of risk involved in it. So it's actually not easy to click send. How do you think about that? And how does that incorporate into this human centered design?
0: I love that your background is in behavior design, because like, I think there's a lot of behavior design concepts that have actually been misused in user-centered design. If you think about things like infinite scroll on Instagram and what have you, and the reward mechanisms there, it's, you know, I always describe it as like social media slot machines is kind of what they designed to keep you on those services. And the motivation question is really interesting. It's like, as you were speaking, I was thinking about a COVID example, like, How easy it is for people to wear masks. Like there is like an ability there, but like it was a motivation piece that was super problematic for a lot of people and had very little to do with their ability to do it. It was oriented around more about like that emotional response to either wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. And I'm trying to think about how those things relate to our work. I think one of the things that we're oftentimes doing within our design practice is encouraging organizations that we work with to kind of put equity first within their decision-making, their strategy. And sometimes when you're working on something like an ed tech product, and these are like complex products to design, you're thinking about a lot of like systemic barriers. It can feel like having to do this additional thing of like centering equity is like another thing to think about is going to slow down your process and your ability to release products, especially if like you have to, let's say, test your products with students from historically under-resourced communities. Like there's a lot of, for example, like digital products that are designed by just, and I think even in the education space, designed just by like going to The suburban school across from where your office is, where, you know, it's like very high income students go to school there. It's a well resourced school, and then you test it and then you find like, oh, it serves them fine. So we'll release it that way. Whereas, like, it takes more effort. It takes trust building within communities to kind of test things, do co design, which is another thing that we do with communities that you might not be part of. So I think there's a couple of things here, right? One is, Representation is really important within organizations in order for them to make that work, like focus on equity. People who are representatives of those communities from whom you're designing, As well as those who already have the mindset of like centering equity or like finding equity to be an important part of their own practice. And it's really interesting working with funders who insist on that for those organizations from their funding to like create products that are meant to serve students equitably. And yeah, if like organizations don't have the mindset, it becomes more difficult. So we try to engage with them in ways that maybe resonate with them a little bit more. There's a lot of like return on investment and financial benefit to focusing on equity, but also working in the education space, we have to treat students like citizens and like put fairness first. It's not just about the return on investment. You may actually have to do things that might slow you down, but that's something we're really grappling with. So I don't know if there yeah, you have any advice, <laughs> um, <laughs> the motivation piece. <laughs> oh my gosh, some of the organizations we work with. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, look, there's so many mindsets in this sector that I think come into. Conflict with exactly what you're talking about. And it's such an important thing for us to be talking in this sector. All the urgency, the way that funding cycles work, even on an annual basis, and trying to have to show proof of impact in an annual cycle with things that take a long time. You know, so for funders who are listening to this, part of it is like this is a three year grant cycle or a five year grant cycle, giving organizations time to really actually do this work and sort of understanding that. We can't ask organizations to implement equitable design and ask them to do so in ways that are inequitable to the nonprofits themselves. You know, I see a lot of that, like even like how white supremacy culture plays out inside organizations, even in the process of trying to implement equity (laughs) in their organizations. It's like, wait, but all this urgency and perfectionism and black and white thinking and like all these pillars of white supremacy culture that are running the operation of how you want to implement this like equity initiative. Like there's just like often a real conflict there. And I think for organizations to like get honest with like looking at themselves And not just the services they provide is a big part of what it's going to take for the like slowing down piece.
0: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That resonates so much. I was just thinking about like, oh, just what it takes to write a grant. Like, (laughs) uh, Have fun with that. That is white supremacy
1: culture (laughs) right
0: there. Yeah, this is idea to actually reflect on not just like what you're doing, but who you are. is kind of interesting because the human-centered design process is typically depicted as having five steps. This is from the Stanford D School many years ago created this. And it starts with empathize. Then it goes to define. Then it goes to ideate. Then it goes to prototype and test. So the idea is that you're learning about people's contexts, you're empathizing with it, then you kind of define the potential solution space, and then you ideate on it, come up with a lot of ideas, and then you prototype and test it. And nowhere in that does it really talk about your positionality as people who are doing this process. It's just like there's something baked into that process where there's a fundamental assumption that you can parachute in from outer space and just be like, okay, we're designing this thing for this community. You see a lot of like, for example, like failed initiatives in the global south, like Africa and India that are like born of like Western sort of global health organizations, because they don't have a great deal of familiarity with the community on the ground. And so when you take an equity-centered lens to that process, you add notice and reflect at the beginning and end of the process. So noticing means like noticing your privilege, noticing your own positionality, and then reflecting is reflecting on how did we go through this? How did we engage the community? Do we have folks in our organization who are part of said community? And I think that noticing and reflecting is like a really huge part of engaging in processes in an equitable way because it always acts as a reminder of like who you are, the kinds of privileges you bring to the table, et cetera. And so I really like using that like with my own team and with our clients when we're kind of like going through The design processes to better serve those who might not be represented on our team. And we do our best as well to have representation on our own team.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, the other thing that, as you were going through those pillars of human design, one of the things that really stood out to me was just like how my, and I know you already expressed some other limitations in terms of the assumptions that it's making, but. What struck me when you were going through it was like the time, like I'm like, okay, like the time and the frame of mind even to do some of those things, like to activate empathy. That's a super hard thing to do in a 30 minute meeting between two other meetings, especially when those other meetings are talking about how you don't have funding to do something. And then your next meeting is some other barrier. Like, I just think like getting into the mindset where you can actually do that requires a certain amount of space, a certain amount of perspective change like this ability to sort of get out of the tunnel vision hustle. And yet we try to do things like that in these super time boxed, urgent moments. And we're like, think from their perspective. And like, we think we can do that in this super High stress environment, and even things like ideating and testing. I'm like, wow, like testing is something nonprofits most of them do not do. They like feel they're applying for that funding for the program, they feel like they have to know out of the gate what's the one that's going to work, and so they stake their proposal on the direction they want to go with limited space for them to really test and try and ideate and iterate. And so it's interesting, like even at its best, that framework when applied to the nonprofit sector is so constrained.
0: Yeah, it almost feels like you need a lot of time and resources in order to do this correctly. I think once you have kind of the mindset of Like integrating this into your processes, though, it doesn't take as much time and energy. (laughs) Like, I know that's like a, a difficult thing for folks to hear if they feel really like time pressured. But I do think there are certain things that you can do is like those who you're thinking about, like those who you want to empathize with, have them be part of the process of whatever it is you're designing or engaging in. Because That's really also like an empowering act. Like if you are experimenting with something and you're changing it, if you have those people involved and they're meant to be on the receiving end of whatever it is you're designing. So for example, you're changing your fundraising process, like have funders involved in that. So like you can get their input and feedback because I've never met a single person in the human centered design process who does not want to give their input and feedback if you're going to experiment or make change or like prototype a new way of doing something. And so having them along for the ride, like through the entirety of the process is really important. And I think like in our line of work, like we do that a lot with students, for example, like you wouldn't think middle school students, would be great at like co-designing investment strategies. But yeah, when it comes to their own education, they're excited to talk about it and feel really empowered to do so. So I think it's like finding ways of engaging those audiences throughout the process, I think really makes it human-centered design.
1: I love that. And I think when you were saying the piece around like fundraisers wouldn't ask, you know, you wouldn't want to redesign something without talking to funders. Then it makes me think about like, fundraisers definitely are going to talk to funders if they're redesigning something with their fundraising. But would funders talk to fundraisers if they're redesigning their application process? So it's interesting then how these, what you're talking about intersects with different types of power dynamics and where we believe we know best or know better than certain groups of people. And there's so much, I think, being designed for fundraisers Without their involvement or without their honest involvement, which sort of brings me to another question about how we integrate voices, like the voices of people who are going to benefit or utilize these products. It's interesting, like, because I do executive coaching the layers of responses that fundraisers would give me around things, right? I'd be like, okay, like, why didn't you do this thing that we laid out for next week? And, you know, the first or for last week. And the first response, of course, was like, I didn't have time. And then the next response was usually, so-and-so asked me to do this instead, right? It was like, the first one was like, blanket didn't have time, kind of like disassociation from the task. The second one was like a redirection and deflection of responsibility of like how their time was managed. But when I would coach them around it, like really get in there, it was always about fear. It was always like something about taking that action was scary. And so it kept getting deprioritized and the way to get them over that action line was Always around addressing their underlying fear of taking that action. It was like when we did that, they always found the time. You know, somebody else's priority didn't start to take over their priorities. And so, I feel like a lot of times, even when tech companies or funders maybe are asking nonprofit fundraisers to give them feedback on things, they're still just getting that first surface level response. And I'm not saying that the fundraisers are lying. I think that that's how they feel. And without exploring what might have been holding them back, they think like, I'm not doing this because I don't have time because they definitely are short on time. and so. How do you, from like a human design perspective, ensure that people are given the space and the safety to tap into their like deepest needs around something as opposed to maybe an automatic response to something?
0: That's such a good question because I'm thinking about some of the scenarios that you put forth and I don't have a good answer for those scenarios. So for example, I've seen philanthropies like fund an effort where they have several grantees and the grantees are just being told like, this is the process. It doesn't matter if you don't have enough time to get to the next step or the next gate. You just have to do it. And like the grantees, like you said, there's a power dynamic there, like grantees are just not able to like question this process or like acknowledge like their fear about being able to fulfill on this and what have you. And so I think it has a lot to do with those power dynamics in terms of like us understanding people's context and getting out those kinds of underlying fears like I think an example here is we do a lot of work in the post-secondary education space and we had to have like some like tough conversations with students about dropping out of school and about the lack of support that they received from their higher ed institutions. And I think part of that was that we don't go in, like we're design researchers. So my team and I, we don't go into those situations With what you're usually taught in terms of research, like staying neutral, try to like coax information out of them. I think because we also take an equity centered lens to how we're the process by which we're engaging with the work we do things like share our own stories with them about how we might have how we ourselves might have failed or like we ourselves might have had similar difficulties this is also another example of making sure you have representation on your team then you can kind of connect with them in order to like get to what are like the underlying things that are really driving their motivation or lack thereof or how they feel about like the system that they just experienced. And one thing that we make clear to them is like, we're really like looking for, and this is like a tenet in our own practice. We look at people's strengths rather than their deficits. And we look at the deficits of the system. So what are people's strengths and how can we draw that out and amplify that? And so for students who have dropped out of school, we also like stopped using terms like dropped out. We use term pushed out because then it puts the onus on the system. It puts the onus on the institution. And I think you could do this with any sort of like power dynamic situation that you're experiencing where somebody is not benefiting from the way like the system is currently designed is kind of thinking about like, okay, what are their strengths that could amplify and what does the system owe them? Or like, what is the system doing that's preventing them from being their most successful best selves?
1: Okay, I'm just taking a few notes because and bobbing my head a lot for people who can't see me, because I think it's really helpful to think about it in that context. And I love that way of differentiating from the individual to the system. And so this brings me to another question that I'm not going to ask perfectly before I talk about that. I just wanted to go back to what you said around storytelling, sharing stories that make people feel more comfortable and more normalized, because I think that is something that is often really missing with fundraisers. Like I think the number one reason why fundraisers connect so deeply with me so quickly is because I talk about how much I hated fundraising and what it felt like for me and how I felt like I was a bad fundraiser and wanted to throw up before major donor meetings. And I remember when I started talking about those things, like it was like they had never heard somebody say that before. And just like the way their shoulders would drop. And I remember one time a consultant telling me, I've never had a fundraiser tell me that they were uncomfortable. Like, I don't think discomfort is an issue with fundraising. I think it's just systems and task lists or whatever. And I was like, well, I totally believe that nobody has ever come to you with that because it doesn't seem like you're very open (laughs) to that, you know? And so it's just like, we sort of like, see what we want to see. And I think for tech companies who are listening to this, for like anyone who supports fundraisers, like CEOs and EDs, like, just you're bored to be able to normalize the discomfort around fundraising any fundraising failures or challenges that you've had like that's what's going to open up the comfort for them to be more honest about their needs and like what is happening so i just i really appreciated you sharing some of that and then the piece that you were saying before around sort of like separating like the individual from the system there's this Question I've been really grappling with recently, which is like, how do we both support individuals feeling a sense of empowerment around their involvement in something? While not taking on the responsibility of the systemic inequity that has made it hard for them to do that thing in the first place. Or with fundraisers, a lot of what I see out there is like how fundraisers can prevent burnout. And it's like the burnout that is being caused is a systems issue. And the reason fundraisers are experiencing burnout is not because of a personal failing on their part. And there are definitely things that they can do to support their nervous system, to support their life, to have them experience less stress, less chronic stress, less burnout. So it's like both of those things are true. I want them to feel a sense of empowerment over the decisions and choices that they can make to take care of themselves without taking on the responsibility of the system that led to that problem in the first place. And it sounds like you sort of toe that line a little bit in how you think about designing around these problems. So I was just curious what you think about that.
0: As you were speaking, your example kind of reminded me of, I don't know if you remember when Sheryl Sandberg's like lean in, had a grip on everybody on like culture. (laughs) And now we look back and we're like, she was putting the onus entirely on women in those environments and putting none of the responsibility or accountability on the organizations that were creating these toxic environments with glass ceilings and what have you, where The women were failing to succeed. And it's kind of like that in terms of like, I don't know, I think we all have a tendency to put the onus on ourselves, like when the system is kind of failing, it's like, what am I doing wrong? And I think oftentimes, and I think this has just come for me with age is like seeing like, oh, there are many instances where I thought I was failing. And like, honestly, it was like the system that was failing me. And it's really interesting especially like, yeah, doing work with a lot of youth, like students in high school, middle school and college. It's just like, I think they oftentimes internalize that. And then you start talking to them in ways where you're just like, oh, it's kind of interesting. Like, what are your strengths? We do some exercises sometimes just when we're interviewing students about their vision or what have you for themselves. And I think it helps frame our conversations to draw out their strengths and for them to like start using that mindset of like seeing like the system and like, how can you change it so it better serves you or what are your dreams of changing it so it can better serve you? And even if you can't like through our work, like we can't create all of that systemic change, that's information that we can share with others who have more resources and greater influence than we do in order to make those things happen, which is why I think it's so valuable to be like understanding the context of the people at the center of the problem space that you're trying to solve for is, yeah, recognizing like those power dynamics, also having a really good understanding. And I'm not saying like, we entirely take the onus off of the individual, because I do think like, There are things like strategies, as you were saying, like burnout, like you have to have strategies for yourself to cope with the crappy system that surrounds you. But I think there's a difference between, like you were saying, engaging in those strategies and putting the accountability on yourself or responsibility on yourself when that's not your responsibility. Like. It's the responsibility of those who are decision-making, who have a lot of power in the system to change it so that people aren't getting burned out. And you see this time and time again in like organizations. Like Just having worked in the tech industry, I feel like I see this all the time, where it's like, yeah, why are people getting burned out? Maybe because you are setting an organizational culture that sets an expectation that they work 60 hours a week. And I know a lot of people who work in Amazon, so I literally hear about this quite often. And yeah, I mean, I think it's the sort of thing that people start internalizing. And I think there's that balance you need to strike of like not entirely internalizing it, but knowing how to like cope and respond to it, I think. Mm,
1: Yeah, it's just really something that it like requires a level of nuance that sometimes when we talk about these things, like we don't have, or we don't give it. And so it's like you read these clickbaity headlines that always seem to make something an individual problem, probably because that's what gets people to open the article. And I always see them and I'm like, ah, like this is not like their job to solve it. Yes, they deserve resources to address it in their life and to figure out how they can contribute to it. But it always feels like the burden gets put back on the individuals themselves.
0: Yeah. And I I think that's part of our individualist culture is the system gets away scot-free, right? Like, you know, I'm always, I'm horrified, for example, anytime I see GoFundMes that are meant to help address somebody's like healthcare costs. And I'm just like, oh, this is a coping mechanism, but this is not how it should be. Like nobody, should have to have a GoFundMe for their surgeries. And yeah, that speaks to like a problem in the system that needs to be addressed.
1: Yeah, yeah. I could talk to you about this forever. I'm fascinated by the work that you do. And I think it's so important. If we were going to redesign how fundraising was done, now knowing that you don't have to be a fundraising expert to answer this, but just think about this from like a human design perspective. If I was going to gather together a lot of thought leaders and funders as say, okay, we're going to rethink how fundraisers fundraise because it is not working and it is very broken. How would we start that design process? Can you just walk me through that a little bit and give us a peek into
0: how the magic happens? Oh my gosh, I love this prompt. And I'm like already like, oh my gosh, what an amazing project this would be. I think, well, one of the first things we do. So, like, hinging on that initial process that I had outlined earlier, which is empathize, define, ideate, prototype, and test, we would first figure out who the stakeholders are with whom you'd want to understand their context. That's like the empathize phase, right? And it's not just fundraisers, it's like fundraisers, funders, and then also like secondary and tertiary stakeholders you might think about in the process. I think as part of the noticing phase, because we would be doing this in an equity-centered way, one of the things I really like doing with like organizations we work with is the Power Wheel exercise. It has like three layers and it kind of shows like these different layers of privilege, like are you an immigrant? Are you a citizen of the country where you are? Are you queer or are you straight? Do you own property? Do you rent or are you unhoused? And people kind of see their proximity to power. And I feel like that's always a really striking conversation for organizations because people I don't think really notice or totally have a handle on their own privileges. And I think once you kind of understand that as an organization, you would then kind of think about like, okay, who are those who are kind of marginalized within our processes that we need to better understand or engage with, like throughout this process and co-design with and identify who those are. And then go into your empathize phase to understand people's context. We usually do things like interviews and workshops and things like that. And then defining is like defining what the problems are that you're seeing based on what you've learned from people. So what are the problems within fundraising? And sometimes as like a design firm, we also map that out. Like here's the current design or here's the current fundraising process. Here are the pain points. Here's where it's broken. Here's where it's like challenging. Here are some spaces for opportunity and then you go into the ideation phase. So you go in with your stakeholders into generating as many ideas as possible in order to address those barriers and challenges. And then you try to prototype and test some of these changes in the system. So it's kind of like, okay, is there a really lightweight way we can kind of test this? Are we doing kind of like a round of fundraising where we can kind of test some of these solutions and orienting towards like a friendly audience for that or something like that, or people who are going to be really part of that process. And then you go back into the process again. So it's like, okay, now we need to iterate on this, prototype and test it again, iterate on this, prototype and test it again. ID8. So those last three parts of the process, which are ID8, prototype, and test, those are like the design part of the process and you do that over and over again. And then if you have to learn about like different audiences, you go back to the empathize phase and then like include them and try to understand their context. And then you come out with like something that looks like a new process that can be mapped and then you will continue like either testing it or deploying it, you know, in the spaces where we work, it we become a pilot and then you test it with a wider audience. But you're never really done. You're always kind of like adjusting it or changing it if you're kind of like doing this in actually a dedicated like human-centered design fashion. I think one of the issues is that oftentimes people think like they're done and like they've solved it. But yesterday's solutions are today's problems. So like you have to always be kind of like addressing what might be the repercussions to what you've designed. Yeah, that sounds like a really fun process. I hope somebody <laughs> goes and does it. I love it. I will definitely let
1: you know if I can get the funding to uh you know, I think like where we're at as a sector is really recognizing that like fundraising is broken and that there have been so many bad fundraising practices promoted over the years. And my, you know, the hill I'm gonna die on is that those Bad fundraising practices are bad for raising money and long-term relationship building. They're also really bad for fundraisers. Like the same cringy fundraising methods that burn out funders make fundraisers' nervous systems get activated. And that's what leads to them being in this chronic stress state that leads to their burnout. They're leaving the sector, all these things. And so trying to help show that correlation because sometimes like the quick win fundraising People have struggled to make the argument around why not to do it if it's going to bring more money in the door today, even if ultimately it's going to bring a lot less money in the door later. It's like the metrics that we're tracking are so quick. But the thing we can see in real time also is the impact it's having on fundraisers to be asking them to fundraise that way. And that is very like immediate and that feedback loop is quick. And so that's where I am trying to get us to a place where we are really looking at how we redesign the way that we do this thing. So I so appreciate you sharing all of your wisdom, really everything. We learned so much from you today. Can you just tell everyone where they can go to connect with you, find you, learn more, work with you all? if they're
0: interested. You can find uh, my te- my company's work at substantial.com slash edtech. And you can see some of our ideas around equity center design there, as well as some of the case studies of work that we've done. You can find me on LinkedIn. At, it's just Cheryl Kababa. I'm the only one up there with my name. So feel free to look me up there, connect with me there. Those are the places where you can find me. I also just wrote a book called Closing the Loop Systems, Thinking for Designers. Talks a little bit about the human-centered design process there. And you can find that on LinkedIn. And I'm also on Twitter, at Cheryl Kalabas.
1: Thank you so much for your time today and for sharing all of um, your wisdom with our listeners. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much, Mallory. This was such a fun conversation. I really enjoyed it.
1: Okay, there is so much inside this episode that I love, but here are a few of my favorite takeaways. Number one, explore the concept of human-centered design by researching its principles and methodologies. Look for resources and case studies that demonstrate the impact of human-centered design in various industries. Number two. Familiarize yourself with the concept of equity-centered design and its importance in creating fair and inclusive solutions. Educate yourself on the barriers and challenges faced by marginalized communities in different sectors as well. Number three, it's important to reflect on the consequences of not implementing human-centered design in product development or decision-making processes. It's important to consider real-world examples where the lack of user-centeredness resulted in negative experiences or outcomes. Number four, Think about how motivation and fear play a role in fundraising. Reflect on the emotional aspects of fundraising actions and the impact of fear on donor engagement. I really like looking at this connection with the human-centered design that Cheryl talks about. And lastly, consider the importance of equity in fundraising and how it can be incorporated into the design of fundraising strategies. Reflect on the potential barriers and challenges faced by marginalized communities in accessing resources and opportunities like this. Okay, for additional takeaways and tips inside this episode, head on over to malloryerickson.com podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Cheryl and our amazing sponsors, Constant Contact. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week.